Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin. We are your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully it is. Hi, Terry. Hello, Bridget. So as far too many of us know, the grief process is always a difficult one. A loss by suicide can make that process even more complex, challenging, and traumatic. An article from the Harvard Medical School lists several factors that make a suicide different. We're going to run through them quickly, but we'll link to the publication because we think it has great information from a highly credible source and that you might want to read it in more detail. The first unique circumstance is a traumatic aftermath. Quote, death by suicide is sudden, sometimes violent, and usually unexpected. Police and others may also be involved, which can add to the trauma. Another is recurring thoughts. Quote, a suicide loss survivor may have recurring thoughts of the death and its circumstances, replaying over and over the loved one's final moments or their last encounter in an effort to understand, or simply because the thoughts won't stop coming. Other unique circumstances include stigma, shame, and isolation. As we all know, there's a lot of ignorance, prejudice, and secrecy around mental illness in general and suicide in particular. According to that Harvard article, quote, the decision to keep the suicide a secret from outsiders, children, or selected relatives can lead to isolation, confusion, and shame that may last for years or even generations. And their last example, mixed emotions. Quote, after a homicide, survivors can direct their anger at the perpetrator. But with a suicide, the victim is the perpetrator. So there is a bewildering clash of emotions. Today's guest, Deb Sherwood, knows all those challenges firsthand. Eight years ago, her husband, Bob, took his life. They were both journalists, and after long, successful careers telling other people's stories, Deb sat down with us to share theirs in the hope that her words, experience, and process will reach, teach, and even help heal others. I was married for over 31 years, and fortunately to the same man, and we had a remarkable marriage. Uh, We met in a television newsroom. Uh, He came in as a news director at a television station I was already working for as a reporter anchor. And uh, eventually we got married, and we continued to work together for many, many years. And... We had a, an amazing relationship. We're together virtually 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. If we could have figured out how to be together more, we would have. So it was a really one of those kinds of relationships. Unfortunately, Bob got very ill. Uh, he ended up with Parkinson's and a number of heart issues and um, also had a knee replacement surgery that went very, very badly, got infected right away had several surgeries where they finally got the infection under control, but he could never get out of the wheelchair again. 
Her once vibrant husband now relied on her for virtually everything. The night that really kind of brought everything to an, a close, he needed my help I don't know, three or four times. And on the last time, I said, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I was exhausted. And I had to work the next day. He had a doctor's appointment when I finally got home from work that day. And it was just sort of like, I, I'm exhausted. And he just looked at me with nothing but love in his eyes and says, I know. It was an exchange many caregivers have had. One so common, there's a phrase for it, empathy exhaustion. But Deb regrets it to this day. That morning, and I worked very early hours, I got up and, as usual, went out to check on him, and he was fine because he was sleeping in a recliner at that point because he couldn't get in and out of bed. But it was obvious that he was having a very, very bad day. We had an agreement that if he ever needed me to stay home, that I would do so, mm-hmm. but he needed to ask. I wasn't going to say, I'm going to stay home today. You tell me when you need me. He made his toast while I went in and got dressed and came back out, and he just looked miserable. And I just said, you know, you really look like you're in a lot of pain. He goes, yeah. So I got him back into the living room and made sure it was set up for lunch and, you know, a lot of water and that type of thing. Deb left with her routine goodbye to Bob and their cats. She worked that morning, anticipating her husband's daily check-in. He would always let me know partway through the day that he was okay. He'd just send me a text because I was in a position where I couldn't take calls. And I didn't get one that day. I got a little worried on my first break. I tried to reach out to him, couldn't reach him. And I thought, well, he's probably just in the other room, didn't have a cell phone with him. So I said, just send me a text or you know, an email when you get to a device and didn't hear back. So at lunchtime, I reached out again, didn't hear back. So eventually I said, there's a problem. You know, he had fallen before and couldn't get up. So mm-hmm. I thought, that's probably what happened because he was so weak that morning. So I told my boss, I said, I've got to go home and check on him. You know, that 15-minute trip home was like the worst trip in the world. But, you know, yeah, everything's going through your mind. But this never entered my mind what the reality was that I was going to face. Deb said her first emotion on entering their home was deep relief. Bob hadn't fallen. He was in his recliner. Then I realized that there was a problem. Um, my mind just focused on the fact that he wasn't responding to my touch, my words. And first thing I did was gather up the cats, put them in the bedroom so that they would be safe and called 911. And I said, I think my husband has passed. And they said, we'll send somebody right out. And, you know, they did. Either the angle at which she'd first seen her husband, some self-protective instinct or both, had prevented Deb from seeing the full truth until after she'd called for help. I looked then again at Bob and realized at that point that he had taken his life. Uh, That's when my mind finally recognized the whole picture. But my mind just wouldn't let me do it until... I guess everything else was safe. So I immediately stepped outside because, you know, I covered suicide as a, as a reporter and uh, I knew I just needed to, you know, leave the scene and, and let them do what I knew they had to do. So they came up and I, you know, I said, my, my husband's taken his life. 
That tragic fact changed everything that happened afterwards. One of the officers immediately took me to the ambulance and, you know, started the interrogation from hell. Uh, not that he did anything wrong. It's just nothing's off limits. I mean, they're trying to figure out, is it really a suicide? Is it a homicide? I'm a person of interest. I found him. It's my husband. They don't know what they've got. You know, they just know that they have a dead person in, in their home and, and a violent mm -hmm. death. So... Everything that you could be asked, you know, how long they've been married, you know, have kids, what's your relationship like to, you know, what's your financial situation to um, health issues. And that's when he asked me, he said, do you think that Bob was concerned that he would end up like in a nursing home or something? And it just really kind of hit me at that moment. It was sort of like oh. my words of I don't know how much longer I can do this really had hit a mark. And I think he was really worried at that point that that's where it was going to end up, and that would not be acceptable for him. And so all of a sudden you're kind of going, this is my fault. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I crossed a line with him, and I know better. I know words, and I know him. And why did I say that? So you go into that guilt mode. Guilt, another difference between suicides and deaths by natural causes. A police search of your every room, closet, and vehicle also makes that list. The coroner and the police finish their business and leave. And Deb is alone in what is now her house with what are now her cats, left to deal with shock, grief, and the solo task of notifying friends and relatives. Then you got the decision, do I tell people, it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, do you tell people on that phone call, if you don't reach them, what happened, or do you just ask for a call back? And on the spur of the moment, I thought, I've got to tell them that he took his life, because at least that'll give them a moment to comprehend what happened. Uh, before they call back to me. So uh, hopefully it will be an easier conversation. It was when Deb started getting callbacks that the depth and power of stigma became clear. That's kind of when the horror hits me, where people are saying, you cannot tell anybody what happened because you'll ruin his professional reputation as a journalist. And it was sort of like, okay, that makes sense to me. I mean, I don't want anybody thinking... You know, what a weak man or, uh, you know, a lost soul. I don't want that to be their memory of him, you know, with all the things that he did in the business and, you know, throughout his life. And so I said, okay. I didn't want them judging him. I didn't want them judging me. So I really only told, you know, family, a few very close friends. Because he'd been ill, you didn't have to have, like, a cover story. They just assumed... His illnesses had led to his death, correct? That is correct, yeah. right, yeah. right. Okay. It was just, you know, he passed, and one friend said, I tell people his heart gave out, because it did. Oh. And it was sort of like, that's a good answer, you know? Right. How long did you keep the secret? Outside of, like, medical and a few close people, um, a good year. Okay. Was there a turning point I mean, at some point you just said, oh, this is ridiculous, I'm not healing, or what, what caused you to say, this shouldn't be a secret? Well, I think I, I realized that even going to, like, suicide support groups okay. that um, people need to talk about it, you know, and it does help to talk about it. 
and it can make a difference for other people as well. Then uh, going through like an intensive outpatient program, when I finished that, everybody said, you have made such a difference. So what was the cost to you personally to have to keep that secret? I think I struggled with just doing anything more than what I had to to get by. Mm -hmm. I think it impacted how I took care of myself, um, what I felt I was worth as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sort of like if the person I love more than anybody else in the world did this and I feel like my words were kind of the push over the cliff. In the same way a death by suicide is different, so is the grief over it. Keeping the truth about her husband's death hidden impacted Deb's ability to heal. Oh, definitely. Uh, Without a doubt, it was delayed. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, nobody could support me or root against me. They just was sort of like, oh, he died. Okay, that's really sad. And, you know, we move on with life. Exactly. Yeah. 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 He's in a better place. And I'm thinking, oh, man. People sometimes will say that even at our suicide support groups, you know, he's in a better place. And I keep thinking, don't say that because, you know, people that have suicide ideation, I don't want to hear that, you know what, you take your life and you're going to be in a much better world than you are currently. It's sort of like I, we think we have to be so careful about what we see. Exactly. Yeah. That, just that final push like you're, you're indicating there. And, um, but, yes, it definitely delayed my healing. I just think that, I mean, having to have that guilt is the word I'm going to use, and I don't know if it's... It is that guilt, okay. absolutely. To, to have that for a full year inside of you when you're also grieving the loss of someone you cherished. I, I just, you know, my heart breaks that you had all of that at once. I still have the guilt. I mean, I will always carry this guilt. Most people will say, wasn't you... That's really where he was. I really think it was spur of the moment. I think that it was just sort of like... I need to not burden her anymore financially, you know, physically, psychologically. I think she would just be better off if I was not here and I can't contribute anymore. Um, I, I, I do believe that. But I think the words that I said about I don't know how much longer I can do this, even though it was said in just exhaustion and not thinking, um, really had that impact. I do have a therapist who I told the story to, and I said, what's your opinion? And he said, yeah, it it had an impact. And I thought, thank you. I appreciate your acknowledging it, Mm -hmm. um, because I I know it did. And whether everybody in the world tells me it didn't, Mm -hmm. I know it did. And that thought of being a burden and that everybody would be better off without me comes into the minds of people who are suicidal, whether or not they've been ill and their wife said that. You know, it's, it's a very, very common thought, yep. and, I, and I was unaware how common until I started interviewing attempt survivors. It's really so sad, you know, but people can't talk about it. And I really thought that Bob and I had the kind of relationship that we could talk about anything because that's what we did for a living. We talked about everything, and yet here's the biggest decision of his life, and I'm not a part of it. There will be people who hear this story and say, I said the wrong thing, too. You know, and she moved on, and, and, and that's going to be so healing to them. So I'm really grateful. Well, thank you. That That's really my hope, is that 
it can make a difference. I can't change what's happened in my life. I can only appreciate all that we had together, and it was magnificent. I will never forget him. He will never not be a part of my life. But I need to share the experience to let people know that it is okay to talk about it. It's really important to talk about it, not just to end the stigma or you know help in that regard, but also, in my opinion, to help heal because that was probably the worst decision I made is to not tell people. It just kept it all stewing in my head and suffering alone. So how now does talking about it make you feel? How is it different than that? Well, I'm a stronger person now. I'm much more empathetic. Um, I really listen to not only the words people say, but how they say them. Uh, so that you kind of read into things a little bit more. And if somebody says, um, okay, you know, you kind of go, well, something going on, you know, so you kind of push a little bit more. Just by saying, you know, it's okay to feel bad, but you've got to talk about it and see what can be done to prevent, you know, suicide from happening in the first place. And God forbid if it does happen, um, what can you do in the aftermath? Because it's a landmine and um, you just have to be able to, figure out where to place your feet. And that answer is going to be different from you, from me, from every person that you talk to, and to be okay with that fact, you know, that it is okay to feel one way when everybody else seems to feel another way. If it helps you, that's what's important. Oh, secrets can be so burdensome and isolating, crippling. Absolutely. I am just so grateful at the level of, um, I don't know, honesty and revelation that Deb was willing to do for this because it'd be real easy to not mention you'd said something. But we know and, and lots of people know firsthand with certainty that there are a lot of other people out there. And when you start combing through your words and your actions and the things you didn't say and your inactions, you know, we can all regret oh. the last encounter in any in any encounter, even one that doesn't end in death. So I thought that was really helpful to hear that and then to also just realize what I think she called it a landmine, you know, afterwards. And that's another reason we're going to link to that Harvard article because it has a list of resources and you might need anything from a support group to, you know, services in your own home to anything. So it's just good to, to have some idea that there are some resources available. Absolutely. And next week, Terry is going to talk again with Deb about some of the outrageous and painful things that people said to her that truly made things worse and some suggestions on more enlightened, constructive things to say and do. Again, So thank you, Deb, for talking with us. Uh, thank you, Bridget. And we'll be back next week with more. Bye. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.